know better than that. Or we know it's more than that. Uh, before Willa was born, financial uh, worry wasn't our biggest concern. Uh, you know, we both had decent income and didn't have a lot of expenses. And we got into a bad habit. We didn't budget uh, as we should have done, or at least look at it consistently. And when Willa was born, that didn't change much until recently. When we took a closer look at our budget, we realized it had gotten out of hand, and boy, it is painful. Painful to look at. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to see it. It was better living in ignorance as if everything was okay. And, and, and there's not only pain in, in seeing what's there, but the pain of, of giving up a lot of good things. Eating out, going to movies, buying new things. But even though it is something painful, and even though it takes sacrifice, the design of budgeting is far greater. And it's far better. A guy told me recently that it took him 15 years to get, for he and his family to get their budget under control. 15 years. That's a lot of pain. A lot of sacrifice. But in the end, it's the same. The design is far greater and far better. Chapter 22 is ultimately about one thing, and it's about a test. God is testing Abraham, but what is important about this test is the design of it. What is the design of God's test meant meant to do and meant to achieve? That's the question we need to be asking. As painful as it is, God's tests are painful. Very painful. But, by design, they are meant to reveal and transform us for our good and for His glory. So I invite you to... uh, Go to God's Word with me this morning in chapter 22. We'll read verses 1 to 19. Follow along in your Bible. Follow along on the screen. Chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This passage reveals four designs of God's testing, and the first design is God's testing is sacrificial. In this chapter, God commands Abraham to do something incredible, sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. As if the command itself isn't incredible, you know, just the command itself is startling, it's not just any old son. God says in verse 2, it were to identify this as your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I mean, the way that the writer well, Moses refers to Isaac through this whole chapter isn't just, it's not just Isaac, it's, it's Isaac the son, the promised son, the only son, the, the apple of Abraham's eye. And this is precisely what makes this so astonishing. This is the child of promise. The God that, that uh, the child God had promised to Abraham. And, and Isaac, is he's probably 10 or 12 years old at this point. I mean, he's old enough to talk, old enough to go with his dad on this journey, old enough to carry all this wood. And so God had promised this child then three decades ago, over three decades ago. And it's this child that is meant to bring blessing to the world. And God asking him to do this is, is like when we spent two decades in Afghanistan. Afghanistan? To have all that effort, all those lives, all that energy put into it, only to leave in disgrace. And with almost nothing to show for it. Stephen Dempster, he noted that that in this chapter is there's a combination. It's the combination of the height of blessing because we have the promised child, but it's also the depth of curse with the attack upon the child. It's also no coincidence that this sacrifice is to take place on what God calls Mount Moriah or the land of Moriah. It's Jerusalem. It's exactly where Solomon will later build his temple in 2 Corinthians 1. So have you ever heard the expression... God will never give you more than you can handle. It's not true. Not true at all. God often gives you more than you can handle. In fact, this whole chapter demonstrates that God calls his people to obey in ways that seem totally inexplicable. God was calling Abraham to give up the son who was now the center of the father's love and affections. Isaac is Abraham's center. And God says, give him to me. 
Doesn't explain why. Doesn't tell Abraham why he wants to do this. God's testing is sacrificial. I mean, we've already seen in a couple of places in Genesis that following God is costly. Jesus only takes it further and makes it more explicit. In Luke 9, Jesus says, If anyone would follow after me, would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. I mean, Jesus claims lordship over everything. Everything that his followers would hold dear. He he calls us to give up possessions, houses, clothes. He calls us to give up pleasures and, and comforts. Calls us to give up money, family, jobs, dreams, a comfortable retirement, a comfortable life, ambitions, all for his sake. Whatever you hold most dear, that is what the Lord Jesus says, give that to me. What do you most fear losing? Search your hearts. What do you most fear losing? Will you give it up? Will you surrender that to Christ and will you exchange it for a cross? It's sacrificial. But the call on us to sacrifice and and give up and and the pain of of giving up our deepest loves isn't just arbitrary and it's not God being meaninglessly cruel. I mean, we all had that one teacher, uh, those of us who are older, we all had that one teacher who made schoolwork and homework just exceptionally difficult just to do it. And maybe some of you were that teacher. No, God has great purposes in calling us to sacrifice. And one of those is to to reveal what's going on in our hearts. Second design then is God's testing is internal. Listen, God is after our greatest loves is because he's after our entire hearts. God's not okay with just some of you. He's not okay with just some of your heart. He's after your entire heart. And testing is meant to reveal this. And this is what makes God, the God of the Bible, Jesus, different from every other God in existence. Every other God may say something about the heart, but what they really are concerned about is just outward behavior. You can do a lot of stuff for other gods without ever having a different heart. And they'll be happy with that. A lot of people who might say they are Christian don't really have a changed heart. They just have better behavior. This God is after a changed heart. When Abraham is tested, God is is turning up the heat, right? So... Abraham's been tested before, but here God is really turning up the heat to reveal what's really going on in Abraham's heart. What or who Abraham truly loves. Timothy Keller, uh, he wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. uh, And it's all about a book about the idols we make with our heart. And he writes of this chapter, 
This was the ultimate test. Isaac was now everything to Abraham, as God's call makes clear. Abraham's affection bordered on adoration. Previously, Abraham's meaning in life had been dependent on God's word. Now it was becoming dependent on Isaac's love and well-being. The center of Abraham's life was shifting. God was not saying you cannot love your son, but that you must not turn a loved one into a counterfeit God. I'd say that the point of all of this is that even more deadly than a knife to his son is idolatry in his own heart. The test was to bring to light, to answer the question, does Abraham love God or his gifts? Does Abraham love his God for who his God is or the blessings that he bestows? That question is the same for us, and it is a painful question to answer. Painful question because often the answer is, we love the gifts. Do you love God or do you love his gifts as awesome as they are? Testing and the call to sacrifice are meant to reveal that to us. And often what that reveals is the deepest working of our hearts. It's the the bottom of our hearts. The bottom, deeper than everything else. Is it being controlled by the love we have for God or a love for something else? So the question is, what can sustain our love? What, what can we love? What, what object can we place our love upon that will always come through for us, always satisfy us, and always love in return? Idols can't. When, when idol and idol is the object of our love, they cannot sustain the weight of it. In our car right now, we have one of the best features I, I could never imagine have a, a car having. It's assisted cruise control. And, and so you set your cruise control, but it detects the car in front of you, so you'll always follow that car at a certain distance. It'll never get too close. It's so awesome. But as good as that is, it's not capable of doing everything I need it to. I, I can't take turns with it. I can't drive in heavy traffic with it. I can't drive in the city. It just can't take all of it because it's not meant to. Idols are good things that we turn into ultimate things. That's what an idol is. It's, it's a good thing that we make an ultimate thing. We try to make them to do something that they weren't made to do, and they will always fail. Only God is able to be the object of our love in a way that our love does not return disappointed or unfulfilled. In fact, When we are disappointed or unfulfilled, it's usually because our love is misplaced. He and He alone can be the truest and lasting object of our affections. And so His testing is internal. Heart-focused. What this means is that He has designed all of this for our good. He knows that our deepest loves and highest values are not what will ultimately save us or help us. In fact, 
they will disappoint us and even destroy us. And one way we know that testing is for our good is that we never go through them alone if our faith is in God. This leads to the third design. God's testing is providential. It, in reality, as, as, as climactic as the sacrifice of Isaac is, that's not the central focus of this chapter. What Moses wants us to really learn from and look at is Abraham's faith. After 30 years, more than 30 years of walking with God, being in a relationship with Him, seeing His faithfulness, seeing His promises be fulfilled, will he trust Him in the greatest test he has ever faced in his life? We can see Abraham's faith here in, in verse 8. They're, they're on their way, and Isaac notices, he's like, okay, we have wood, we got fire, we got a knife. But dad, where is the lamp? And what, is, what does Abraham say? He says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. That's faith on Abraham's part. I don't think he was lying to his son. Uh, we, we learn later in, in Hebrews that, that, that Abraham, figuratively speaking, believed that God could bring his son back from the dead. And then, after all is said and done, what happens? God does provide a ram. And I love that it says explicitly, he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, in place of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, verse 14, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is exactly what I mean when I say God's testing is providential. Yes, God is sovereign over our trials, but he's also providential in them. John Calvin wrote that providence means not that God sits idly in heaven, looking on at what is taking place in the world, but one by which he, as it were, holds the helm and overrules all events. He goes on to say, this is the Christian's comfort that his heavenly father so embraces all things under his power, so regulates them by his wisdom that nothing takes place save according to his appointment. His providence. In other words, God's providence means the exceptional and masterful care of his people to provide for them what they need at all the right times, even when he asks us to give what we think we need the most to him. Providence means, God's providence means the exceptional, masterful care of his people to provide for them what they need at all the right times, even when he asks us to give up what we think we, think we need most. Alan Ross commented, this passage shows that the faithful worshiper will hold nothing back, but will obediently give to God whatever he asks, trusting that the Lord will provide. This is not like an airline where when you buy your ticket, you're not, you don't know if the plane is ever going to take off. You don't know if it's going to be there 
You don't even know if you're going to have a seat. Everything that we surrender to God, even an enormous cost, is always matched with abounding grace. Always. Another way of saying this is that whatever God calls us to do, he also provides the grace to do it. And that is so good of God. He's not just saying, I want you to give everything to me. He's giving us the grace to do it. He's empowering all of our obedience. So why does God give us more than we can handle? So that we can depend on Him and realize over and over again that He really is that awesome. Like God really is that awesome that if all we had was His grace and we gave up everything to Him, it would be astoundingly amazing. This, this is our, our hope and our joy in trial and suffering, suffering. Listen, we are often too sinful, too selfish, and too blind to see it. But each new trial, each new testing brings a unique opportunity to behold that God's grace is as wonderful as He says it is. And how many times have we gone through testing and, and to think, uh, like, okay, yeah, I, I, I get what God wants to do. I'm tired of this testing. And we discount His grace. But it's a unique opportunity for us to marvel at how wonderful it is. That's ex- this is what makes Paul... This is what he can say in Philippians with complete confidence and conviction. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness. So it's not just compared to the greatness of this, but surpassing greatness. A greatness that continues to grow and continues to surpass all other things compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. Knowing Christ the Lord is truly that wonderful. And this is also our confidence to pray whatever it takes. Have you ever prayed that prayer, whatever it takes? That's a prayer of surrender. That you're praying for something and you pray that God would do it, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, make me holy. Whatever it takes, make me like Christ. Make Whatever it takes, kill this sin in me. Whatever it takes, help me to know you more. Because we can trust that whatever it does take, the grace God provides will always be plentiful, it will always be enough, and it will always be better. His testing is providential. Wonderfully satisfying satisfyingly amazingly carefully providential the final design is that god's testing is essential you can't be a christian without god testing you this is similar to our first point in the cost of following jesus right followers of jesus will suffer will carry their costs, will sacrifice. But Hebrews frames this in terms of of discipline. Endure hardship as discipline, he writes. 
For God is treating you as sons. If you are not disciplined, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. No testing, no holiness. No holiness, no good. So let me put it this way. If you are not tested and put through severe trial, and if you are, but they are not making you more like Christ, more holy, then you cannot be confident that you are a Christian. Hebrews says you are illegitimate sons. Testing is essential. It's essential for obedience for a Christian. To prove the the quality of our obedience. Reveal the nature of our obedience and refine the extent of it. And if there is one thing that we learn in this chapter, it's that obedience is essential for blessing. God will not bless disobedience. Yes, God shows us mercy and doesn't give us what we deserve. Yes, God gives grace and gives us far better than we deserve. No, our relationship with God is not based on our performance with Him, or performance for Him. I'll explain all of that in a moment. However, we cannot expect His blessing if we are not submitting to His Lordship. Free grace movement. Right, John? And yet the converse is true. If we are faithfully obedient to Him, we can expect blessing from Him. In fact, this chapter shows us four ways God blesses obedience, and I've framed them using four F's. Four F's. And in verse 16, God says, um, By myself, I have sworn. So this is the, actually the highest uh, oath, highest promise that God has made, because now He's swearing by Himself. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, because you obeyed, he even says that later, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And the first blessing is faithfulness. first blessing of obedience is faithfulness. In other words, Abraham witnessed God's faithfulness in the past, and through obedience gets to see more of his faithfulness. John Piper says that the greatest gift of the gospel isn't salvation, it's that you get God. Salvation is a means to get God. He wrote, the ultimate good of the gospel is seeing and savoring the beauty and value of God. All the gifts of God are given for the sake of revealing more of His glory. Faithfulness. So the second blessing is fruitfulness. God goes on to say, I will surely bless you, verse 17, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Listen, this is the same command given to Adam 
but now is in promise form. Be fruitful, I will make you fruitful. In the New Testament, the great emphasis on being fruitful, when you, when you read any moment they're talking about bearing fruit, it's about becoming more like Christ. Even in John 15, one of the, uh, a, a verse we all know well, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I will give it to you. It's a great promise. But he says that in the context of bearing fruit. He even says right after that, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit. So do you want joy? Ask God for fruit. Our greatest need isn't a change in circumstances, a a change in jobs, a a change in um, uh, place or location or whatever. And, and, And those things are important. If you want more joy in the midst of all those, ask for more fruit. More fruit. So faithfulness, fruitfulness. The third blessing is freedom. America, right? July 4th. That's We're really thankful for our freedom, but that's not what this is about. Verse 17 again. Uh, and your offspring, he says, shall possess the gate of his enemies. So this is a promise that Israel will um, conquer their enemies later on. And, and specifically, this is fulfilled... Uh, under David and then Solomon's kingship. So you read that they have rest from their enemies on every side. So God does fulfill this. But listen, we, we would be wrong if we didn't read this in the context of Genesis. Where this is a reference to the one enemy. The serpent, Satan. And, and the promised offspring. Who will crush his head. On the other side of the cross, we now know that God fulfilled this promise. In Christ, the true offspring has dealt a death blow to the true enemy, the serpent. Freedom comes through Him. And and listen, this is where this is where it, this lines up, connects with testing and, and trials, is that through testing, God applies that freedom. In Christ, we have true freedom. So now, in testing, God applies it. Where we have freedom from fear, freedom from idols, and and freedom from sin. And the fourth and final blessing is is fullness. Verse 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. There it is again. Because you have obeyed my voice. Blessing and curse features so much in Genesis. And we, we've seen before, right, God wants to bless the nations, but this blessing isn't just a generic blessing. It's not wrong and it's not bad to want clean water for nations, uh, food for nations, want nations to prosper, want uh, nations to combat things like sex trafficking. Those, those are all blessings. That's not exactly what we're talking about here. The blessing... For all nations is they, that they will come to know God. Isaiah 11 illustrates this. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. So blessing, blessing, they shall not hurt or destroy. The ultimate blessing is being able to exist without fear of harm, isn't it? So, so they shall not hurt or destroy in all my mountain. For why will this be? The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
I like thinking about what this means in light of what Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John 4. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. And, and more than that, as if that promise isn't wild enough, that you'll never thirst again, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Fullness. Overflowing. Obedience is necessary. Testing is essential. But don't hear me wrong. These blessings will not come apart from Christ. You can try with all your might to be obedient. You can try with all your might to be faithful in testing. But blessing only comes in Christ. This chapter is just overflowing itself, isn't it? With gospel imagery. Christ is the true and better sacrifice who offered Himself because our best that we could ever offer is never good enough. Christ is the Lamb caught in the thicket provided in our place who took the knife of God's wrath instead of us. Christ is the beloved Son, the one and only Son that God did not withhold from us, but gave us as the very best that He could offer. Christ is the the true worshiper of God who alone knows the full value of God's worth and worshiped Him as He deserves. Christ is the true blessing. All these blessings that come from obedience come because we get more of Jesus and if you are not in Christ you are still under curse you are under the knife of God's wrath and that will execute you where you will remain for an eternity but if you turn to Christ in repentance and faith, and if you are in Him today, you have received the very fullness of God. Today, Christian, you have already received the fullness of God. God has not withheld anything from you, but has given you everything that belongs to Him. You have have the perfect sacrifice. You are counted perfectly righteous. And you have given, been given every spiritual blessing that God Himself can bestow on you. So let's respond to God's Word this morning. Respond in repentance and in faith. Respond that we might be obedient. That we would call out for obedience. And that whatever it takes, He would reveal our hearts to make us more like Christ. And to give us more of him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. You are the true son. The true son in whom we access blessing. And what blessing have you bestowed on us? You died in our place. Dying for our 
anger, evil words, evil deeds, evil thoughts, evil desires. You died in our place because we failed to see God as, as, as valuable as He is. You died for our gossip and our lust and the murder in our hearts. You took our place. God's wrath was redirected at you. And, and you, you died with our sin and you rose again and in you, more than that, we have a perfect righteousness. So even though our obedience is necessary, our obedience isn't what changes our relationship with you. We are secure in you forever. Righteous today, beloved by God. And the sentence that the Father pronounced on you that this is my Son with whom I am well pleased, that is true of us. God is well pleased with us because of you. And you intercede for us. You give us grace. You fill us with your Spirit. You are faithful to us when we are faithless. Every spiritual blessing. Father, we ask that whatever it takes, if it's testing, if it's trial, if it's suffering, you would refine us. Refine our faith. Refine our obedience. Kill sin. Destroy idols. That we would be filled with more and more of your fullness. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to invite everyone to stand one more time. Let's respond to our Christ, our Lord.